And I know that government ministers, they're also wearing their orange shirts, taking part in this movement, which is great. But for us in the Nantes Territory, we're still fighting for justice. We are still fighting for a just settlement for our students, especially those that uh, went into St. Anne's Indian Residential School in Fort Albany. St. Anne's stood out because of just how brutal the conditions that the, the students had to go through, including a homemade electric chair. But they're still fighting. That's Alvin Fiddler. He's Grand Chief of the Anishinaabeaski Nation Treaty 9 Territory in Northern Ontario. He's our guest on the Akamemuk Podcast. Danse, Tawao, and welcome to the Akamemuk Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Bellegarde, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is Cree for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't ever give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations people with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And today, we're happy to welcome Grand Chief Alvin Fiddler of the Anishinaabeaski Nation, Treaty 9 Territory, Northern Ontario. He's also a member of the Muskrat Dam First Nation. In his decades of public service, Grand Chief Alvin Fiddler has led justice initiatives, including the Ipawash and Kasechuan inquests, and the joint inquest into the deaths of seven Anishinaabeaski Nation youth in Thunder Bay. He also co-chaired the Deb Waywin Committee on Implementing Reforms to Improve First Nations Representation on Ontario Juries. Chief Alvin joins us from the brand new Anishinaabeaski Nation offices in Thunder Bay. Grand Chief Alvin, welcome to the Akamemuk Podcast. Well, Jay National Chief, thanks for having me on your show. Good to see you again and congrats on the opening of your new offices there. Miigwech. All right, Grand Chief. Last week, we had the new throne speech for 2020 from the Liberal government laying out their legislative plans for this session of Parliament. And then one of the things that when we listened to, when I listened to it, it talked about building on the commitments from 2019's throne speech, which had a whole chapter on Indigenous issues. This time they didn't have the chapter, but they highlighted legislation on the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It highlighted policing as essential service. It highlighted distinctions-based healthcare legislation. It highlighted closing the infrastructure gap as soon as possible. So there were some things in there, no question. I want to ask you, what did you see in the throne speech from this year that might have jumped out at you as saying something being important? Well, first of all, I didn't really get a chance to listen to the whole throne speech. I think I was out that day in the bush uh, looking for partridges and birds. But I did catch uh, highlights and uh, it's the same things we've heard before from whether it's a liberal government or the conservative government that uh, you know that they make all sorts of promises uh, to mm-hmm. uh, our, our communities and uh, we wait and wait and wait uh, and very little uh, changes from from year to year so uh, you know my hope is that you know whatever uh, the prime minister committed to in this uh, throne speech that there'll be some follow-up on those items that's a good point you make and one of the things that we were starting to use was everybody's talking about reconciliation, reconciliation, you know, and the word that people are starting to use now is reconciliation. You know, let, let's put some real action and meaning behind those words that uh, governments use. And uh, one of the things they did talk about, and we've seen recently all the, uh, um, I'm going to call it for what it is, systemic uh, racism and discrimination in the policing system right across Canada. Uh, so they did talk about policing as an essential service. And a few years ago, Nishnab Nan was thinking about shutting down their police service. What was the story behind that possible shutting down of, of NAPS, you know, the NAPS police service up in your territory? Well, that was sort of my first 
crisis when I came into the office of uh, Grand Chief for Nishnayim Basque Nation about five years ago was our police service uh, threatened uh, strike action. And it caught a lot of people off guard, including our leadership. Uh, you know, they, they called me asking me, how can a police service uh, go on strike? And my response to them was, because they are not uh, really a police service. They are a program-based uh, police service. They are not deemed an essential service under the current structure, under the current uh, legislation that they, well, it's not even legislation, it's a policy, the First Nation uh, policing program, uh, and how these uh, uh, police services, including NAPS, uh, the Basket Police Service, uh, were created back in the uh, back in the early uh, 90s, uh, mm-hmm. in our case, 1994. Uh, so it, it's been operating uh, on that basis for, for many, many years, uh, severely underfunded uh, and, and not... Uh, given all the tools that they need to be able to f- uh, fulfill their mandate, which is to provide uh, uh, public safety, community safety for all the communities in NAN. And uh, there was a general frustration uh, by our communities and also by the police officers themselves that they just felt that they couldn't do their job safely anymore, that they uh, had no choice but to threaten uh, strike action. So the, is, the, is the collective bargaining agreement coming to a, an end soon? Yeah, the, this current uh, agreement is coming to an end uh, March of 2021. But just going back to what happened five years ago uh, when we were facing this, uh, this crisis with our, with our policing service, uh, I made it very clear to both uh, uh, funders, Ontario and Canada, that uh, we will no longer uh, operate uh, our police service uh, uh, under this current structure, uh, that I will no longer sign any agreements that are uh, based on a program, and that it's up to them to make sure policing is carried out uh, in our territory, that I made very clear that we will no longer do this uh, ourselves. Uh, we're giving you this thing that is not working back to you, mm-hmm. and you figure out how you're going to administer policing in our territory, and uh, that was there was a bit of a stalemate there for about a year, year and a half, and when they actually did the calculations, how how much uh, policing would actually cost to do it uh, to do it well and to do it based on uh, say the the Police Services Act, it was probably double than what we were getting. So it very uh, very quickly, uh, you know, it was very clear uh, to both Ontario and Canada that uh, they would have to spend more money if they were to take over policing themselves. So I think that that's what gave us uh, a strong business case moving forward, that, that we would have to, uh, in order for us to carry on policing in that in, in territory, we would have to get substantially new uh, new resources. That was uh, the main challenge going forward with, because, so our listeners are clear, right now there is a policing program, the First Nations Policing Program, and it's funded uh, 52% from the federal government, I believe, and 48% from the provinces. That's right. And even back home in File Hills, Little Blackbird is part of the File Hills Police. It's a standalone police service. Uh, but again, as you indicated, the issue is that the, the financial resources aren't even close uh, as to what's needed to, to meet the basic needs in terms of capital and infrastructure and human resources. So that's the big issue. The point you make is that the, the numbers, the financial numbers were almost doubled, you said, eh? If that's they were right. going to do it properly. Okay. Yeah, so they came back with a substantially different agreement uh, because, uh, you know, all the, the police services uh, across the country will tell you that the way negotiations have been done in the past, uh, you can't even use that word negotiation because you were given a, a, an agreement 
that had already been negotiated between the federal government and the and the provincial governments, and then that's what you get. And you, you had no choice but to sign it uh, under duress because you know you you get this agreement in late March, and then you have to keep operating into April, and that's that's what's been happening over the last 25, 26 years uh, since uh, this program uh, has been uh, has been operating. So I, I made that very clear that we just took a, 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 a principled stand that we will no longer do this. Uh, so they came back to us, this current agreement that we have, for example, uh, they gave us 78 new positions, mm-hmm. which is significant in terms of uh, having additional boots on the ground. They gave us funds to uh, upgrade our uh, communication systems, uh, and they also... Uh, committed to two new police detachments in our communities, and that's something that we will continue to build on uh, moving into the next agreement. So, again, coming back to the throne speech, it's the priority of this government that they move towards policing as an essential service, and it will be legislated now if we can get it done in time as soon as possible. So that's uh, obviously something that's definitely needed. Would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, for sure. If, If they can work with us on that, uh, if it's uh, uh, truly a, a, coll- a collaborative process, uh, then for sure, I think it's something that that could work. But we've been asking for this uh, for some time now, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, about three, four years ago, we were able to convince the provincial government here in Ontario to uh, begin working on a provincial framework uh, on policing, uh, and that uh, legislation was passed last year, about a year and a half ago. And now we're we're working with the province. Uh, on a uh, on a partnership uh, basis to co-develop uh, regulations that will support uh, that legislation, which will uh, allow uh, here in Ontario the Cybersecurity Police Service and other First Nations Police Services uh, to apply for designation. And then uh, once you get that, then you will deem an essential service, and with that will come standards and the resources that will uh, uh, that will uh, help you meet those standards. So we're working on on that piece already provincially here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, federally, uh, I, you know, I, I can't really say for sure how that would work, but uh, if, if Canada is committed to uh, creating a national framework on policing, then that's something we would definitely be interested in, in also. Yeah, that's great, because we're going to, from the AFN, I know we've been pushing uh, Minister Bill Blair uh, quite hard on this, along with our, my colleagues that uh, have assigned the portfolio of justice and policing, Chief Jislam Picard from Quebec and Chief Terry Tiji from BC as portfolio holders. And we've got their commitment, and we're going to start that process as soon as possible. But obviously, we're going to call on you and your team for their experience and their expertise to help in co-drafting that legislation going forward. Because it's moving beyond a program now, you know, a policing program, to policing as an essential service. And we have to make sure that we get it right. And I told people that I won't be happy as National Chief until we hear those words, royal assent. So it's, it's one thing getting legislation introduced for first reading, you got to take it through the whole system and right. uh, get it past the royal ascent. So we've got a lot of work to do, no question. So, so we're going to look towards working with you and your team to help bring this to fruition as soon as possible. Another element in the throne speech that was talked about, which I know will affect uh, First Nations in your territory and the whole healthcare system, is legislation, first uh, distinctions-based healthcare legislation. Mm-hmm. And uh, describe what you have right now in Northern Ontario in terms of a healthcare system or healthcare services, and how would distinctions-based healthcare legislation, if it was brought into being, affect that? Well, that's another important area that we've been uh, working on over the last uh, four years uh, after we made uh, a public health emergency 
a declaration of emergency about five years ago uh, at a meeting in Toronto where we uh, made a, a statement uh, saying that we are in a state of crisis in NAN uh, when it comes to health care. And that's how this whole uh, work around health transformation uh, began. But it's been slow. Uh, it's been frustratingly slow. And now with this pandemic, it makes it, uh, you know, the gaps that were there in our communities became even more pronounced uh, once this p- uh, pandemic was declared in, in March. And I was on a phone yesterday with with uh, Dr. Tam, the uh, uh, the national uh, uh, chief public health officer, uh, mm-hmm. and we talked about the challenges that our communities are facing during this pandemic. For example, there is no public health system. There is no public health structure in our communities. Uh, that will uh, help us move forward in a good way that, uh, you know, we're just right now uh, dealing with uh, trying to address the basic health needs of our communities, you know, the nurse and a doctor, maybe a dentist or, you know, just just basic, basic uh, services, never mind a a public health structure that we, that is so critical during a pandemic. You know, when you talk about vaccines, even uh, flu vaccines that uh, that we're being advised for our, our community members to uh, to take this fall. Like that, that's 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 an issue for us because we don't have this. We don't have enough public uh, health nurses, and uh, we made a request last uh, week uh, asking for 50 new public health nurses in the Ontario. Territory. We have not heard back from Ontario and, uh, or Canada on this, but it's something that we will definitely uh, push for because that's critical. Uh, you know that that public health piece is so critical uh, right now for. Uh, for our communities. So everything is compounded in the north and because uh, people think, oh, access to hospitals. Well, in the north, there are no hospitals and uh, there's nursing stations that are understaffed, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that's all there are in the north. They're flying communities. So it's the isolation makes it very difficult. Then you, it's doubly combined now with uh, the overcrowded housing and then lack of access to potable drinking water. Is, that's right. This whole thing is compounded. Yeah, no, and, and, I mean, I always go back to the uh, Auditor General report of 2015, uh, you know, where, where they, uh, a team of uh, 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 from that office traveled to Chinan and also to northern uh, Manitoba to do an audit on nursing stations. Uh, and the report that came out in the spring of 2015 was pretty startling. Uh, one of the the lines, uh, one of the paragraphs from that report that really stood out for me is that, uh, you know, Health Canada does not take into consideration the needs of first nation communities when it comes to allocation of resources. Like, it, they just don't. You know, it, you know it's a fixed uh, amount and an envelope that they give to each region every year. And, you know, that's your job is to administer whatever is in that uh, envelope. And you have to make sure that you, you break even, that, you know, you don't go over budget or, you know... That, and it, that current structure is is costing um, you know lives. It's costing the you know, our health and the well-being of uh, uh, of our communities, and that's something that we are trying to change uh, through this health transformation journey that that we're on right now. So again, we're going to look to as we go down that road to getting legislation drafted nationally for distinctions-based healthcare legislation. We're going to have to draw on some of your expertise from NAN territory mm-hmm. for sure. And part of that as well was uh, mental health. And we know in our teachings, mental health, spiritual health, physical health, emotional health, it's all connected. Mm-hmm. And even dealing with mental health, and we know that the suicide rate amongst our young people is five to seven times than is the national average amongst mm-hmm. First Nations people. And so what are your thoughts on that? How did that fit in as well as we work down this road about healthcare legislation, distinctions-based? How does that fit into everything? 
yeah, that's uh, that's really important. Um, our, our mental well-being is 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 uh, is something that that should be a priority for us, uh, for for our kids. You know, I, I have uh, you know my wife and I. We have two, we we have two kids, and uh, we we worry. You know, mm-hmm. as parents, uh, you know, when you have teenagers, uh, you worry about. Uh, you know what they're going through, especially now uh, during this this pandemic. Like we knew there were gaps in mental health before uh, this pandemic was declared, but uh, uh, you know, and now that we're in the middle of a, of a pandemic, it's it's even more glaring, and uh, that's why we are making efforts now to uh, try to bridge some of those gaps and to make sure that there's uh, help available for those that that need it, uh, 24/7. Uh, so back in uh, beginning of August, we launched. Uh, this uh, this mental health model uh, called uh, Nan Hope, and it's something that uh, uh, anyone can use, including our elders. So we have mm-hmm. uh, uh, language speakers as part of that uh, that service. Uh, we know that uh, elders are also being impacted by this by the isolation and by just uh, the impacts of of this pandemic. So we we are making sure that everyone in Nan has access to the service, no matter where they are. Uh, and it's something that we we still need to build on that. Uh, I made it very clear to uh, uh, ISC Minister uh, Mark Miller and others uh, that uh, we will need to have these pieces in place uh, even after this pandemic uh, is is over. That we need we know there's going to be uh, a long-lasting impact on our mental health from this uh, pandemic, and uh, it won't be over in a year or so. It has to be, uh, you know, the structures that we build uh, need to be able to remain in place for uh, for some time after this pandemic is, is declared over. Oh, there's no shortage of work, no question, on dealing with both the, the policing as essential services piece of legislation and the distinctions-based healthcare legislation. So there's no shortage of work. We're going to have to keep moving on those fronts for sure. And even talking about uh, the systemic racism within the policing system and the, the justice system or the legal system and systemic racism within the healthcare system. Just recently, we saw incidents uh, of doctors and nurses in British Columbia making a game of guessing how intoxicated First Nations patients were. And in, just in Quebec this past week, we saw the, the video and listened with, with great anger and, and, and fear and disgust at what we listened and watched when we saw Joyce Etchequan, you know, in, in the hospital being insulted by healthcare workers in Joliet as she died in the hospital. So dealing with that uh, racism, that's there, what, what do you think that this distinctions-based healthcare uh, would mean in terms of trying to deal not only with providing better healthcare to our people, but even dealing with systemic racism in the healthcare system now? Yeah, first of all, it was, uh, it was heartbreaking to see uh, uh, that video of uh, of Joyce uh, in her last uh, moments of her life, and what she had to endure, what she had to go through, was was just horrific. Uh, I cannot imagine, you know, how she must have felt, uh, and being able to take out her camera and, and film it and record it. Um, it was just, I, I cannot imagine how that must have been for her so i just wanted to extend my condolences to mm-hmm. her family and community and uh, uh and sadly tragically we've seen this before you know that uh you know hospitals uh are supposed to provide uh, uh, a safe space that they're supposed to provide help for those that uh that, that seek it 
but a lot of times uh, we've seen our people go to these hospitals and not get that help and uh, in fact lose their life and that's what happened here last fall in Thunder Bay when uh, a young man you know, who was experiencing a mental health distress went to the Thunder Bay Regional Hospital mm-hmm. was there for 10 minutes was escorted out by security and the next morning uh, was found uh, dead not 100 yards from the hospital uh, and we saw the uh, you know what's happened in, in Winnipeg with uh, Mr. Sinclair waiting at the mm-hmm. ER for 36 hours or longer and died waiting there. And we hear about these uh, these stories right across the country. And I was also reading that last night the Premier of Quebec denied that there's systemic racism in hospitals. And as long as this reality, uh, you know, that uh, those in power, those in leadership, continue to deny that uh, there are problems in these areas, it's going to be very challenging to mm-hmm. to make that change that is so needed in these institutions, whether it's uh, policing or hospitals. You know, right now with the RCMP, for example, the uh, uh, the commission of that uh, of that police service, uh, you know, this summer, again, denied that there's systemic racism in, in the, within the RCMP. Mm-hmm. And yet we hear stories about uh, whether it's Chief Adam or some of the horrific scenes we, we've seen, some of the excessive force on the, some of the arrests. Uh, I don't know what, to me that's not policing. I don't know what uh, Commissioner uh, Lucky would call it, but it, it's just, you know, and I was just uh, saying yesterday on social media uh, that after watching that video of Joyce, you know, that this is what systemic racism sounds like and looks like. And that's something we need to change. I totally agree, and it's something that we've always told to to all leadership at federal government, provincial governments, uh, private sector institutions in the uh, in the policing system, in the justice system, the healthcare system, the educational system. That you first have to acknowledge and admit that it exists, that mm-hmm. systemic racism exists, and then start beginning and working with our people and leadership to bring about systemic change. We have to keep working sooner than later to improve the quality of life for. First Nations people, but really you're building a better country when all that's addressed, and that's really what it's all about. The other point uh, I want to swing to now, Grand Chief Alvin, is that, you know, it's September 30th today, and uh, we're wearing our orange. It's Orange Shirt Day, and September 30th is a way of honoring, remembering the survivors of residential schools, and uh, we've always called residential schools as a genocide of our people uh, because there was, there was physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse of children, and there, our children were separated from our families, our culture, our communities, our languages. So on this day, September 30th, on Orange Shirt Day, what are your thoughts, you know, in terms of uh, Orange Shirt Day? What does this mean to our people to acknowledge this day? Uh, it's, uh, it's very important. And, and I had the honor of meeting Phyllis Webstad last fall. Uh, she came to uh, visit me in my office and we had lunch and I was able to hear her story. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, what she experienced when she was uh, just a young child going to residential school. Um, and the movement that she started is so important. We all need to support that. That's why we're wearing orange shirts uh, today is to honor Phyllis and to also honor all the Indian residential school students, uh, both that, you know, the, those that uh, have, have gone before and, and those that are still with us. You know, and I know that government officials, you know, the government ministers, they're also wearing their orange shirts and uh, taking part in this 
in this movement, which is great, but uh, uh, for us in the Nan territory, uh, we're still fighting for justice. We are still fighting for a just uh, settlement for our students, uh, uh, especially those that uh, went into Saint, uh, went to Saint Anne's uh, Indian Residential School in Fort Albany. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the work that we did uh, with the uh, with the TRC, uh, we heard about many, many just horrific experiences from across the country. But Saint Anne stood out because of just how brutal the conditions that the, the students had to go through uh, that existed there including a homemade uh, electric chair. That's it. But they're still fighting. And, and you know, I think about Edmund Matatawaban uh, and others who are now, uh, you know, in their 70s now, they're, they're becoming elders, and yet they still have to go to court. You know, they were, there was another court proceeding just about two weeks ago. And why is Canada dragging this out? Why, why is Canada fighting survivors like Ed and Evelyn and others uh, when they should have settled... A long time ago, like why prolong their suffering? Hmm. You know, that's something I would ask. Whether it's uh, Minister Bennett or the Attorney General uh, or the Prime Minister, that uh, hopefully they will listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. That would be the question I would ask them. Like, why are you still fighting? They've suffered so much already as young children, and yet. Now that they're in their 60s and 70s, they're still fighting. They're still subject to this, uh, uh, to the to these injustices. And uh, I would just tell the federal government do the right thing. You know, reach out to these survivors. No, that's a strong message, Grand Chief. And I think uh, for our listeners out there at St. Anne's, it's uh, infamous for that that electric chair. And uh, and you know, and I know that it was used to to punish First Nations children children. They were put in an electric chair for speaking their language. And uh, that's what they're trying to address. And uh, uh, we want to support and uh, uh, Edmund Matadwaban and all the others, you know, to seek justice and, and what's right and uh, echo the call for to the federal government, the Crown, to do what's right and support these survivors sooner than later. So this day is very important, September 30th. And uh, recently there was a bill introduced in the House of Commons to recognize September 30th as a day for uh, truth and reconciliation and to acknowledge the impacts the residential schools had on our people. So we'll see where that goes in the House of Commons, you know, in terms of recognition. So there is movement there. But now I want to move now in terms of all the things that we have facing First Nations people in Canada. Like we know like we're 5% of the population as First Nations people, as leaders, how do we provide hope not only to ourselves, but our families and people? And, and how do we sleep at night? What gives you hope as Grand Chief? Well, my baby just walked by here in the hallway. Um, she's 15. Uh, as I mentioned, we have two kids, and my kids give me hope. Mm-hmm. Like, it is so great to see, you know, not just uh, Ali and, and Jace, but uh, other children that I meet along the way, and uh, just how, you know, just, Hopeful they are that you know, that things will get better for them, and that uh, you know that their future is, uh, is 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 a lot brighter than probably yours and mine were, Perry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are doing everything we can to support them. Like we have worked so hard over the last uh, five years uh, to support them in their education journey, 
Uh, the other thing that we did in the Ninth Territory through the uh, Human Rights Tribunal process was to create a program called uh, Choose Life. It's transforming young lives right across the Ninth Territory. It's a life-saving, it's a life-changing uh, initiative, and it's something that I've asked the federal government, uh, even though they gave us a three-year uh, mandate, uh, about a year and a half ago, that this has to be made permanent. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has to become part uh, of our communities moving forward. Uh, that it cannot just be uh, renewed year, year year after year or or three years. Uh, that this has to become uh, a permanent uh, part of our communities, uh, and it's uh, allowing young people to reconnect with their with their families, with their with their with their community, with their culture, with their language. Uh, you know, some mm-hmm. of the things that we were seeing across Ontario is just uh, it's, it's so inspiring to see. And uh, that gives me hope. Like that gives me a reason to get up in the morning. You know, despite all the the difficulties that uh, that we see and that we experience, that we feel, that uh, you know, we need to keep moving forward. We cannot just, uh, even though we may feel like just staying in bed and curling in a fetal position all day, you know, we can't. We can't have that. Like we have to get up in the morning and uh, and keep moving forward. And uh, my kids inspire me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the children, the youth that led me along the way, they inspire me to uh, keep moving forward in a good way. Awesome. The resiliency of our young people, seeing that pride coming back on their, who they are and where they come from, their language is coming back. That's that's a powerful message of hope uh, that we can bring to our people. So I want to acknowledge you and, and thank you for coming on this podcast. And uh, thank you and lift you up, Chief. That was Grand Chief Alvin Fiddler of the Nishnabiaski Nation. Thanks again so much for coming on our Akamemuk podcast. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemuk podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. <laughs>